Hey everyone, another special episode of Dilemma. Uh, season one just was never meant to end, I guess, because the entire world has turned into an episode of Dilemma. Um, so I'm coming to you from my uh, my pandemic hideaway, which is in Pennsylvania. This is a house that uh, I didn't grow up in, but my parents got when I was in college, and here I am, and there's a bonsai tree, and doing well with the social distancing. Anyway, today I am talking to Amanda Ripley, who is a guest who I've been dying to reach out to. I'm a huge fan of her uh, her writing. She's a writer. She writes for The Atlantic now, um, and she's a best-selling writer. She wrote a book called The Unthinkable, Who Survives in, Dis- in a Disaster and Why, which is what this episode is obviously going to be about because we are in a global disaster that is slowly unfolding. Um, so we talk about The Unthinkable. It's an incredible book. She wrote, I think, in 2008. Everyone should go read it. She wrote another book that I'm a really big fan of called uh, The Smartest Kids in the World, which is about education systems and why certain systems in certain countries seem to thrive. Fascinating book. I'm going to have her on in season two for a, a more normal episode. But uh, for this episode, another sort of pandemic conversation um she is the guest talking mostly about the unthinkable and we i just recorded it so i'm recording this after we get into a lot of incredible topics about uh her work with covering disasters from tsunamis and previous pandemics like sars and swine flu that she covered um she writes about things like stampedes at the Hudge, which is uh, an incredibly chilling chapter and plane crashes and who gets out of these things. And we draw analogies to the world that we're living in now. But then there's also a lot of practical advice about what we can do to sort of get through this on a personal level. Because I think one thing that, that we all are, are aware of is there's this sort of global disaster that we're all living through. But then there's these personal little dilemmas that are just uh, all over the place, which we might even see, feel kind of guilty about, wondering about, you know, uh, oh, poor me, I can't see my friends or go out drinking right now. And that seems a little callous to be saying or thinking about in the context of, of a global disaster where people, of course, are literally dying on large numbers. And perhaps it is on some level, but there are also real considerations to talk about and real problems for us to solve. And I think a source to find actually resilience that can even contend with and help us be better prepared to not just survive on a personal level, but communal level, the the next disaster, whether that's a pandemic or whatever it happens to be. So we get into all that stuff. Um, Enjoy it. Thank you for listening. And hopefully soon we're back to some sort of normalcy. We'll see where we come out on the other side. Uh, but here you go, another episode of Dilemma that I was not expecting to make, and here it is. Thank you for being here. These are not normal times. I am here in my suburban life here uh, in, in Pennsylvania. There's a bonsai tree over here that my mom has on the shelf. <laughs> That's where I'm doing this dispatch from, and you're in you're in the mountains of Shenandoah, or you're in D.C., sort yep, of isolating. Yeah, just outside uh, of D.C., yep. Yeah. And you wrote a book called The Unthinkable. Uh, now 12 years ago that I obviously can't stop thinking about in this situation. Um, the, the book, the subtitle of the book is what, how, uh, who survives in disaster and why? Um, and I, it, it talks about things like uh, stampede at the Hudge, which is a terrifying chapter for me. Nine uh, 11 stories, plane crashes, those kinds of disasters, tornadoes, Hurricane Katrina, this kind of stuff. Uh, and now we find ourselves in this global situation. I wanted to start by, are we in a disaster by your 
uh, sort of framing or what you learned while doing that book? Are we in a disaster? Does that count? Definitely. So some disasters are slow motion disasters, and this is one of those. And so I don't think the behavior is radically different. It's different in some ways, right? But the scale of this, um, the level of dread, which is is actually a technical term (laughs) in in research on disasters, um, all of those things would, I definitely put it in the category of a disaster. Yeah. I wanted to start with a story from the book that I, I, I think is relevant of Tilly Smith. Um, you could tell her story. Uh, also, you're also just a, an amazing storyteller, not just a journalist. I love reading your book. It's just sort of uh, a narrative structure is incredible. And you tell the story of Tilly Smith, who I'll let you, you, you'll tell. Uh, and then um, the analogies that I think might be interesting to, to parse here about why there was no Tilly Smiths here, or maybe there were a lot of them and we just didn't listen in the situation we find ourselves in with coronavirus. So who is Tilly Smith, if people don't know? Yeah, so Tilly Smith is an English, she was an English schoolgirl vacationing with her parents in Thailand in 2004. And they were walking on the beach when the tide suddenly rushed out, which is unusual. And the water just was behaving oddly, is very shallow. And tourists started pointing at the fish flopping around on the sand. And, um, and you know, she was 10 years old, Tilly. And it happened that she had just learned about tsunami in her geography class at school just a couple of weeks earlier. Um, and she'd actually seen a video of a Hawaii tsunami and learned all the signs. So she told her parents, you know, we have to get off the beach. I, I really think there's going to be a tsunami. And her parents, um, you know, initially were, as you might imagine, skeptical of this, but she was really adamant. So eventually her parents um, started warning people to leave the beach. And uh, that's a difficult thing to do, to listen to a 10-year-old and take her seriously. And uh, But she was, I guess, you know, she probably wasn't prone to making (laughs) sort of empty threats like this. And so... Um, the father went up to the Marriott hotel where they were staying and he happened to tell a staff member while another guy standing nearby, another tourist, um, overheard it. And he said, yeah, I heard there was a big earthquake not that long ago. Like this is possible. So they ended up clearing the beach and it was one of very few in that town where no one was killed or or seriously hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible story. She talked about like the water gets kind of frothy or something like a like a beer or something like that. And some yeah, geography teacher that I was looking up was the one who imparted this lesson. I mean, there's a lot of amazing analogies to talk about Tilly, but why I find it fascinating and interesting here is that it was, um, it, and maybe it falls apart because it's sort of a physical warning that you could actually see, but even in a place like America, it's like, here we are in the US and you sort of saw this tsunami coming in a wave of graphs that that just seemed to just announce to everybody uh this is this is coming do something there's nothing that's different about america really from italy or from spain or from all these places that we're seeing they're just telling you like hey you're just you're nine days behind the graph in italy so what do you do something and it seemed it seemed like the you know tilly smith i'm just imagining this image of like the the economists and the mathematicians running around america as little tilly smiths telling everybody to get off the damn beach and then it, maybe more, but literally people weren't getting off of beaches in Florida and California. And here we are. I mean, that, I guess that's why the analogy I think is, 
interesting. I don't know if you if you've been thinking about her or other stories from that book. Definitely. I mean, I, I think that we all have a tendency to first enter a phase of denial in any kind of disaster. So it could be literally a fire, an earthquake, a hurricane. It can be slow motion disasters like an economic crisis or a pandemic. The first phase is always, always, always the same, which is a period of profound disbelief in which Mm. most of us get really creative uh, to come up with reasons for why this is probably no big deal. And there's really good reason for that, actually. Like, I don't blame us for that. And I think uh, it's particularly tricky in a pandemic and we can talk about that. But, you know, unless you've had experience with an actual threat before in recent history and it's vivid or you've had highly realistic simulation training, which is just as good. Then you're unlikely. You have no like bucket to put this in in your head. You know, you have no no slot, no no like category for this, and so your brain naturally is going to try to fit it into everything that's happened to you before. Um, and so that takes time to get through that phase, depending on you know who you're getting your information from, who's around you, who what kind of experience level other people have, and you know you can see the difference, right? Like despite all the problems that happened in China, in much of Asia, Asia, they had recent experience with pandemics like this, right? Um, With SARS and other things. So once like they kind of realized what was happening, uh, you know, there was a pretty rapid response with some exceptions. So when you have experience, that's going to help you a lot. If you don't have experience, you got to have really good training. That's going to help you a lot. And there were people in the United States who had both of those things, who made, who tried to kind of sound the alarm. And, and that's true in many other countries. Um, but we, you know, we do a lot of preparedness and drilling and simulation around pandemics. None is quite, you know, nothing ever goes exactly the way you expect. I do right. think most people were pretty compliant. There were exceptions, right? But it's really hard to know the level of compliance. Um, when we have one camera looking at, you know, kids at spring break, that's not necessarily representative of most people, right? Right. And to be fair to those kids, like the warnings were saying is only affects you, you know, if you're old and then that data changed. Right. So the information in any disaster is always really confusing and misleading, especially at first. And so yeah. pandemics are particularly this pandemic is very tricky because there's so much uncertainty and it's such a moving target. So, you know, when your brain encounters uncertainty and risk, you will always make decisions using emotion. And you will yeah. use shortcuts to make decisions. So that means when there's a high level of uncertainty, which there was and is, you will always, almost always either underreact or overreact or alternate between the two, which is, I think, kind of what I'm doing. I don't know about you, but I <laughs> some days I'm underreacting, some days I'm overreacting. So it's, it's hard to get it just right. Yeah, I was just rereading your, your chapter on panic. Um, where this this word overreaction sort of lives on the border of something called panic and what is panic. Um, and it, yeah, it, when you talk about that, we're in a slow motion disaster. I think everything in your book, which again, we're all very, as far as I remember, like immediate disasters. These are things that, that are like very suddenly you're in a life or death situation. Um, but, but the slow motion, you're right, doesn't seem to be actually 
changing any of the dynamics of it. You just actually get time to to parse them. So something about we could get into the panic and this notion of anger that comes up in a lot of in, in your book. And I'm thinking of now, you know, people being angry at themselves, seeing images of those kids on the beach. I remember my girlfriend and I were watching Jake Tapper and and uh, Sanjay Gupta on CNN, watch images of those kids and be sort of like infuriated by it. And again, thinking of the analogies in your book of something like a very fast motion thing, like trying to rush to the exit doors when you hear a loud sound. There was a story, you could tell the story of like this little pizza shop or something where they heard a loud bang in the basement. That was kind of it. That's the entire issue. And then everyone starts to sort of go towards the doors and suddenly you're in this notion of panic, but people turn on each other in those moments. And some of our human psychology becomes very ugly in those moments of people uh, pushing each other, punching each other. And some is very beautiful. Uh, I will also, before you answer sort of what I just threw at you, you do a great job in the book of not ever answering the question of who survives and why with any sort of <laughs> overarching, here's the answer, which, which, which is, is it's why it's a, it's, a, it's a good book. I mean, I would hate it if you did because, oh, here's the key to survive. Of course, there's never one reason. Um, but if you don't mind sort of it, tell the story of that pizza shop, because I think it's, it's so relatable in such an awful way of our psychology that you could, you know, you can, you, you tell it, but I could imagine doing something very stupid and ugly in the middle of a dumb panic, trying to find the exit door in a pizza shop. Yeah, no, it's, it's really tricky because we use the word panic a lot in sort of normal conversation. It, it sort of in, in disaster world, it technically means like, aggressive antisocial misbehavior, right? So you can't really call buying toilet paper panic, right? Like that's, I mean, it's not great because that means that other people can't get the, the toilet paper yeah. by a yeah. bunch. They've started it. rationing it here in Pennsylvania, by the way. There's signs, yeah. you can only buy one, yeah. So. Which just makes perfect sense and probably yeah. should have happened sooner. But, um, but you know, that's not panic per se. Like panic is punching out people at the cash register, right? So you haven't seen a lot of that. Usually when it does happen in disasters, it's almost always exaggerated. So I've grown to be really, really skeptical of the first reports in any, after any kind of disaster of um, like misbehavior, like looting or rioting, they almost always turn out to be like one guy with a big screen TV or two guys, you know, like looting a shop. And it, it's never like at the scale we expect. There's a certain conditions that have to be present for looting and rioting to really take hold in a significant way. Um, and those conditions are not usually present. I mean, the reality is, you know, we're human beings. We need each other to survive after a disaster more than normal. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like, you know, rush hour on the freeway. It's a totally different set of emotions and needs and instincts when you're in during or after a disaster. And I think, you know, to your point, a lot of disasters we think of traditionally are much faster, right? Um, but the probably the closest analogy, and, and I've, you know, I've written about swine flu and other things, but I feel like those are a little different. The closest analogy would be a hurricane, I think, because you get days of warning and, uh, and you have to rely on people to take action to evacuate or to stock up or, you know, so there is, there's maybe some interesting analogy there, but, uh, but in general people, um, you know, running for the exit when you think there's been a bomb that went off in the back is not rational, right? Like, uh, 
So, so is that panic is sort of an interesting question. You know, there are even the Hajj, you mentioned the stampedes at the Hajj, and um, this is sort of a recurring problem. It's happened in, you know, soccer stadiums around the world, big rock concerts, you know, other venues where people are all trying to get out and there's a crowd crush. Um, And that, too, is usually a problem of physics. Like there's literally a a sort of shockwave that happens through the crowd and the people in back can't see the people in front who have fallen down. Right. So. Anyway, we can get more into that. But, um, you know, I used to hear this as a reporter, like, oh, panic never happens. And I didn't I didn't believe it because that sounds like something academics say. Right. Like, you know, like, oh, no, no, no. People are good. You know, and you're like, really? Uh, like, we don't believe it. Um, but having covered a bunch of different kinds of disasters, I don't I, I'm not saying that people don't misbehave or make ill-informed decisions um for sure that happens and that by people i would definitely include people in charge and reporters and politicians like those people do do a lot of sketchy things and often not knowingly um but uh sometimes knowingly and so i'm not saying that people are like good you know always it's just that the movie the sort of cinematic scene that we have in our heads of panic is unusual. Yeah. It, it, with the, and we don't have to name names, but we certainly could, but with this notion of, uh, ignoring warnings and using your priors, remembering the last hurricane that you lived through just fine. So you're not going to flee this time. You tell the story, I forget his first name, Turner, I think it was his last name, a guy who tried to, to sort of wait it out. I think with a cross a crucifix and a baseball bat was the name of that chapter through hurricane Katrina, unfortunately did not make it out. Um, but it was, you know, you were sort of giving him on uh, understandable, like, well, the last three times they told me to leave, I stayed and I was fine. So I'm going to stay that, that problem seems like such a tricky, uh, problem about trust, clearly trust in institutions and trust in warning signs, trust in the media, which maybe people have as a, a very all time low about, um, crying wolf and overreacting to every election that I've ever lived through was the most important election to ever vote in and life and death depends on it. And then you start to sort of, uh, lose trust that the next one, when they tell you this one is really the big one, you're like, well, that's what you said every time. And you just want my money and you want me to tune in. I don't know how we solve that problem, but, uh, it's obviously decisive when it comes to who lives and dies and even things like a plane crash. If you trust the, the stewardess or whoever takes charge, with the, with the exit plan. Um, uh, I, I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't know if you've thought about it. Uh, like the erosion of trust on little things. You write a lot, of course, about 9-11 quite a bit. And we all know now that there was early recommendations when people would call 9-1 to just stay where you are and wait it out. Someone's coming. And people who followed it, like we all know that story that if you followed that, you died. Um, which wasn't a huge number. And like you said, those all get exaggerated. I think most, I, I didn't know the number before you read your book of the people, the percentage of people below where the planes hit that actually lived was quite high. It was, it was only a few, like hundred something deaths underneath that. Um, but those stories stick out and I, I just don't, I don't know how to solve it, but it seems like nobody knows who to trust right now. The CDC is saying wear masks and they don't say, then they say don't wear masks. Everyone's getting a lot of weird information. And then the lack of trust, it seems like we have a lot of nefarious actors who step into those places. And I don't know. 
I just threw a lot at you. I'm just dismayed. Yeah, I think you're onto something really important. I think if I wrote the book again now, I would talk a lot more about trust. And, Mm. you know, from my, like the unthinkable, which came out in 2008, was, you know, very influenced by the disasters I had covered. So Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, anthrax, things like that. Um, But the real, the sort of the, the, the thing that got me interested in writing it was because I was covering all these disasters for Time Magazine and over and over and over again, the people who had survived these disasters had really important and surprising and useful lessons to tell. And they weren't making it into our bigger conversations about policy or emergency preparedness. So these survivors had like these incredible amounts of wisdom, right? You think about it, millions of Americans evacuate for hurricanes every year. Like they know what to take with you what not to take. Like they know a lot, right? But they're very rarely asked in any systematic way for their opinion. So the book was really an attempt to say, hey, what can we learn from these people that we don't already know? And there's a lot that they want you to know. Like they're, you know, people who have been through these things have uh, a lot that they wish they had known. And so the reason I say that is just to um, turn the question upside down. So we do have a huge trust deficit in our society right now. And it yeah. is a massive, massive problem. I think about it all the time with regards to my own profession of journalism. I think it's a huge problem and we're seeing the effects of it now. We're seeing the effects of it. We will be seeing the effects of it for years to come. I also think that the biggest solution to that is that the people in charge and the institutions need to trust the public. So it's not just about how can we get the public to trust, you know, journalists again or to trust uh, institutions or government. And so people in charge always underestimate the public before and during disasters. And it's a huge systemic predictable failure. And there are psychological understandable reasons for that. But that's that's like the mechanism, the trigger that I would really try to work on is is not just. We have to work on how can we get people to trust institutions again, but those institutions have to be trustworthy. And one way that you get trust is by giving it, right? So it's sort of like um, in journalism, the analogy is some of the most innovative newsrooms, and most of these are local newsrooms, and there aren't many, but the most innovative ones are really trying to give readers and their audiences way more influence over what stories they do, how they do them, you know, questions they want answered, like be much more um, transparent. Sometimes they deputize uh, people, residents in the town to help them go through huge data sets and they train them up to do that. And just really trying to say, hey, you guys live here. You know, we don't know everything as the reporters in town. You know, we've spent many years telling you what you need to know. And now we want to just kind of give up some of that control and that sense that we know better. And that doesn't mean that we don't do stories we think are important or that we're not independent and ethical and all those things. But I think that's a really, um, to me, a really promising way to try to build back some trust. And it has to do with giving trust to the public. So already we've seen, you see this in every disaster, it's like totally predictable that people in charge underestimate the public. So they say stupid things like don't panic or, you know, stay calm. You know, these are like, just ridiculous things to say. And, and it happens over and over again. So the best, the best public officials and politicians and emergency managers are ones who trust the public and deputize the public because they are the only ones who will be there to get you out of this. Like that, there's no better example, right. Than this pandemic, like we need extraordinary public cooperation 
yeah. to contain this. And so you have to treat people like grownups, like you really do. And you have to give them information, tell the truth, always, always, always admit what you don't know, be very explicit about what you thought yesterday. And now you have new information to your point, because it's always changing. Yeah. And so you really have to treat people. You, you have to have the same conversations with the public that you have with your, you know, family and, and friends over dinner. Like yeah. you have, they can't be different. Yeah. And it, it seems I'm trying to, again, use these analogies to like the immediate disasters of trying to escape a, a plane that crashed and those kind of things. And I think they're all still there. Um, I remember I'm skipping a little ahead of my notes, but I, I, I remember reading your book and noticing everything I was seeing wrong with warning signs because they said dumb stuff like don't panic or stay calm or these like trite things that actually don't mean anything. And it, again, me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were advocating for and still advocate for very specific, deliberate information, tell people the numbers of things and trust them that they will respond to it. And actually, I, I don't know if this was your doing. You can tell me if you, I started seeing ads on the subway from the MTA that were suddenly very specific after I read your book. I don't know if they read it too. That would just said like eight people died by stepping into the tracks last year. Be careful. Like it was, and suddenly it was very specific, not just like stay behind the yellow line. It was like, here's the situation. Um, and, the, and, and yes, yeah, it was, I, I think it was an improvement. I don't know how their numbers have gone, but you should, I, I, if I'm doing this also video, I can put up these graphics that I have. They're very direct and sort of like alarming ads it's stick figures but they still like get the point across um but when things change so like the cdc 10 days ago saying like you shouldn't wear masks and now they might change that or something like that uh, i'm imagining uh if i was in in a plane that crashed and we're trying to get to the exits and there's, there's smoke filling up or whatever and then i'm somewhere back in the line and and then somewhat up in the front says, oh, we can't use this exit anymore, but doesn't tell me why. I don't know. I might panic or I might freak out or try to get to it. But if they say like, oh, the, you know, there's like, there's a fire at this exit. We're all going to shift to the left one. There is this kind of docile thing that people fall into. And I don't know, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it's almost this trance state that you just sort of oblige because you fall into that. Um, so if the CDC gave us the reason of, oh, things have changed and this is why we're doing the mask advice right now, you, that's, what, that's what you mean. I guess I'm really asking you, like, what are we doing wrong? What should we, pe the experts be saying right now or the people we need to trust to do the thing you just said and empower the public? So I recently talked to Baruch Fischoff, who's at Carnegie Mellon, who studied um, risk communication for many, many years, really thoughtful, smart guy. And he said that the biggest mistake he's seeing is that the language is really sloppy. Mm. So the best way that public warnings uh, can be issued is to you have to test them first. Like you can't use your intuition. So all of us think that we're better communicators than we are. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that people don't always hear what you think, that people have questions you haven't thought of, um, that people may not need, they may not trust you for various reasons. They may need to know why, to your point. They almost always want to know why, uh, and it's very rarely included. So this step is really critical, and it's different. Risk communication is different than PR, right? So when you deal with high-level politicians, it's PR people who are writing those, those talking points, right? And that's very different than a risk communications person who will know that you need to 
test that message, even if it's literally with five people. If it's a diverse group of people who represent your audience, then or your community or whatever, that's great. Much better to say, hey, what do you think if if we say this about the masks? What do you hear? Like, what else do you want to know? Like, what would you do based on this information? And it takes like 15 minutes, and the public is grateful to be asked. Mm -hmm. Like those five people are like, and they will go tell their friends, hey, guess what happened? And the same problem with public health officials. So they've done, you know, Herculean work, but it is not typically in their toolbox to test their messages. They think they're being super clear, right? Um, And this happens again and again, like the best example of this, I mean, there's so many, but, uh, you know, when they, when they talk about like um, categories of hurricanes, right? Oh, no, this is even better. This is my favorite. <laughs> um, when you get like a text message or an alert that says um, tornado war- warning, right? Um, yeah. There's like, So there's different levels of, of jargon that only- Tornado only, watch, then warning. watch, yeah. there's yeah. a warning, right? Um, and those both start with a W and <laughs> sound the same to humans, right? To regular people. But the people in charge of warnings uh, know that there's a big difference between a- <laughs> tornado watch and a tornado warning but that doesn't matter <laughs> like the yeah. warning isn't for them and journalists do this too we write we write things that we understand right so anytime you're ignorant of anyone in your audience which is always you're going to miscommunicate you're going to be misunderstood you're not going to be trusted so you really have to test those warnings and that's something that I, i've been writing a couple of washington post columns lately yeah. about coronavirus. And, and that's, I'm glad I got to tell you, Jay, because that got cut from the piece because we didn't have space. <laughs> but yeah. I do think that's a really important thing that um, doesn't actually take that long. But again, it goes to trusting the public. They are your allies, right? They're not the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are there lessons from the specific disasters you covered about who survived and didn't in things like plane crashes? I didn't. So the, the numbers in that book are also pretty uh, uh some of them are really encouraging because we you know i don't know what the audience in their heads right now if you haven't read amanda's book how many people do you think actually die in plane crashes when the plane goes down whatever numbers in your head the real number is what 56 percent. that's it yeah most people survive most plane crashes survive. are survivable yeah, yeah. so which like you would never know from watching hollywood right. movies or anything yeah, well, else like that's going down there's nothing but, you can do <laughs> but 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 it but the and again correct me if i'm wrong it seems it's not like an all or nothing thing but some plane crashes sort of in explicit in a, well there's explanations i guess but you open the door and it's like everyone died and then some everyone lives so that number that you come out with about half and half really is almost the like you're on the right plane or the wrong plane. like what's different about the planes that do really well versus don't and it and can we i know there's a lot of other variables of physics and if you happen to hit a mountain versus the what whatever but um are there lessons there about the communication in the moment of how you're going to get off that plane quickly that we can learn here like you're trying to say i don't know who who does the messaging you know yeah. So I think you're asking, like, if everything else is constant, like the physics of the crash, yeah, chemistry, yeah, yeah. then what matters, right? What makes the difference? And there's definitely there are definitely things that matter. So um, the most common mistake that actually all animals, <laughs> but let's just talk about humans. Humans make in disasters. Another show. We'll talk about other animals. Yeah, animal, <laughs> right? other animals in disasters. Well, you write about cow stampedes too, which is fascinating. But go on. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. But for yeah. another time. So, 
humans, the most common mistake is not panic. It's what the airlines call negative panic. So it's literally the opposite. It's not fight or flight. It's freezing, shutting down, not moving at all. And this is a state that you, any animal can get into if they're scared enough. It seems to be evolutionarily valuable in certain situations that almost never happen to humans today. But, you know, if you're playing dead, like a playing possum, right, that expression, that, that may not be a terrible decision in one in every five billion uh, situations. <laughs> so like yeah. right now, most threats, you need to act, you need to move. So what they've learned with airplane crashes, and the reason I talk about airplane crashes, just to, just to like be clear is that because they're, they're really not dangerous. Like it's not a real threat for most people, but they get the people study the crap out of them, right? Because they're such a deal breaker for the industry. So they have psychologists, they like re like they study everything about the forensics and the behavior, human behavior on plane crashes is really well studied. Uh, as opposed to other much more common threats. So it's useful as a laboratory. And what they found is that you can break through, like, so So in most plane crashes, people, they, the plane ends up on the ground and on fire. So you have seconds before that smoke is just too toxic to survive because of the chemicals um, that you're breathing in. So the whole game is to get off quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem in a lot of plane crashes, to your point, um, you know, they, they put out the fire and they go on board and they would see people with uh, their seatbelts on and their hands crossed in their lap. And there was no, no one had moved. Right. And that was just chilling and, mm. and tragic. Right. So um, what they found is that when people get into this kind of trance, right, when they're very frightened and they have no realistic training or experience for that situation. So both those things, frightened, very frightened and no experience for how to get off. And how to, you know, no like uh, muscle memory for this situation. That's where you tend to sh- sort of shut down and freeze. And what happens though, just like with other animals, a loud sound can actually snap you out of that really easily. So they started training flight attendants to literally scream at you to get out of the plane, right? And uh, rescuers of different kinds do this too. I mean, I did some training with flight attendants for the book, and it, it's a little. Uh, unnerving, you know, because normally they hopefully don't scream at you. But when the, in these mock-ups, they, the plane would, the cabin would fill with non-toxic smoke and, and they're, they're yelling at you, you know, like unbuckle your seatbelt, get off the plane. <laughs> and, and it yeah. works. Like people become super compliant in these situations because they, they need to, like people yeah. become very social in disasters because they need the group and they don't know what to do. And so if there is a commanding presence uh hope, like nicholas cage is on your plane somewhere <laughs> just yelling at everybody yeah just hope that nick cage knows what he's doing right yeah, because right. people will also follow you into doom like right, that yeah. the problem so um but yeah aggressive leadership is very effective in those situations also training so yeah. you know people who study plane crashes have proposed in the past that they should like in airports, put a mock-up of a, like a plane cabin, right? In the airport. And you could practice getting out, like going down those slides, you know? And yeah, the, yeah. But of course yeah. the airlines don't want to do that because they, yeah, they don't, they don't want to yeah. go near, they don't trust you basically, right? Like they don't want to talk about crashing because then you might not fly. So, yeah. um, but it, you know, any kind of experience you have evacuating a building or, you know, preparing for something, the more quickly you'll probably move through that, that phase. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think this is on topic. My next question was going to be about this notion of spectacle and obviously airlines, the, the spectacle of an air of a plane crash is, is big. We all see it on the news. And so we tend to then overestimate how frequent they happen, all that kind of stuff. And so like you're saying, the airline then wants to, you know, eliminate all of them. Um, but in the instance we're in now, I, I have this question in my mind that I can't shake. I'm a filmmaker. You're you're in media, sort of similar kind of ideas. Um, and about communication, I keep wondering if this moment, this that we're still in, needs a poster or an image to to shake people in that way that the stewardess yelling at you of like do something right now. Um, you know, I, I think of images. We actually we did an episode in season one with, with uh, Larissa McBarker about uh, a famous photo of of the vulture behind a, a starving child in Sudan that made the front page of every newspaper in the '90s and sparked this this uh, action to, to end the famine in Sudan. Uh, the napalm girl photo that we all know, which was actually a film still from Vietnam. Um, the the dead boy, uh, the Syrian refugee who washed up. We all know the photos, and we know the crisis now has a poster. I don't know how useful they are, but they're emotionally sort of, um, enrapturing. Does the, I don't know if this, this moment has a photo. Does it need a photo? Does it need a poster? Does that actually help? Am I looking for the wrong thing? I actually don't know if it would help. Yeah. Um, uh, there's one, I mean, there's a couple candidates that I think are floating out there. One thing that seems to catch on is, is uh nurses holding up signs or something that read uh what is it we're staying late please stay home for us that i don't know if you've seen that going around which is a nice message um but i don't know if it's jarring enough and and this points to uh, paul bloom wrote wrote the book against empathy that that made the the very seemingly obvious point of you could read that a hundred thousand people died of coronavirus yesterday but it's so much less effective than seeing one photo or video of a, of a old man starving for his last breath of air while his family cries behind a pane of glass and can't comfort him in his last moments like it's it, it some people can multiply that one instance by a hundred thousand when they just see the number but most of us can't so i don't know as members i mean you're much more in the media i'm independent like what how do you do that? Like, what am I looking for the wrong thing here? For coronavirus? So, so if I'm understanding you, you're saying that you don't feel like people are, are you saying that you don't feel like people are taking this seriously enough and that maybe a really vivid, compelling image would help, um, would help people take it seriously. Is that, so, is that right? Some, some people maybe. Yeah. I don't, and I don't know. It's hard to, to, grasp if people are generally or if people aren't it is a and we haven't really and we haven't really talked about the wicked problem that we're in of this one where uh, you kind of need everyone to play along because just one person can kind of spoil the whole thing i mean it's some, there's a lot of particular dangers with the pandemic um but but let, let's even just say someone in your family is not taking it seriously or just doesn't you know i mean do they need an image yeah Okay, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. So, because because it's important, I think, to kind of separate out uh, the categories, right? Like, they're probably you could sort all people into like twenty different categories right now of people who are too afraid, like they're past a point where they're able to make good decisions, and the anxiety and fear have a really strong negative health effect. We know that, right? So. Um, that's counterproductive, right? And then, so those people, you don't want to show them an image necessarily, right? <laughs> like that's not helpful. Yeah. Uh, and then you have like all the way, like 
many categories between that extreme and people who just think the whole thing is a hoax and aren't doing anything and are maybe intentionally sort of, you know, yeah. and, and that's a very small number of people who are intentionally um, violating the, the directives in a kind of flagrant, reckless way, right? Like that, that's a small number of people from everything we can see so far. It's again, hard to know, but so you get this whole spectrum. So let's talk about maybe, you know, someone who is maybe not taking it as seriously. They're doing things that they don't need to do that put themselves or others at risk. Right. Um, and probably we all know someone who'd fall into that category. So the, the most salient thing I think that will happen with this, it may be an image, but it'll probably be a person. And it'll probably, I hate to say this, it's kind of morbid, mm -hmm. but it'll almost certainly be a famous person uh, who dies yeah. from this, right? Yeah. So um, it's, it's like a kind of an awful thing to say, but I do think that uh, once a celebrity or someone from your town or someone, you know, just today I saw a headline in the Washington Post, I live in D.C., that said an aide to the mayor had died of mm. the coronavirus. I don't know this person. I don't know the mayor, right? But it did kind of, it had a salience for me that um, was higher than reading 100,000 deaths, which I know is crazy, right? Like, right. I know that's irrational, but like, I'm human, right? So anytime you know someone who knows someone who knows someone, but uh, I think probably a famous, you know, high profile person, uh, that death will really hit home. But we also have to remember that we have a, we had a pre-existing condition before this pandemic, and that was the political polarization in this country, yeah. which you know is is what I'm I'm very focused on for the the stuff I normally write about these days. But that is you know that is everyone is viewing this event through those lenses, so you yeah. do see a differential in how um, how seriously Republicans are taking this versus Democrats, how people feel about the news media. Um, you know, very much informed by their pre-existing uh, emotion regarding politics. Now, again, most people are not on those extremes. Most people are kind of the exhausted majority of Americans who are not particularly partisan, but, yeah. you know, very vocal people, um, many of them highly educated and influential, are extremely partisan, and they are not seeing this the same way, depending on their, where they land on the political spectrum. So that is, I, I, I think that will continue to distort our response and the narrative that we create for how this went down. Yeah. I, I used to, I think, be a little more optimistic at the beginning of this thing that we were going to avoid some of the partisanship, but it, it's, it seems my optimism has run dry very quickly. Uh, when you mentioned like a risk communicator versus a PR person, I mean, all right, I'm no Trump fan. I don't know how you feel, but it seems like Trump is the PR person up there. He's, his whole life has been a PR campaign for himself. Uh, and Dr. Fauci or these other people who seem to be up there trying to be these communicators to us are, are you know, bless him, trying to be a risk communicator. Um, it, it just seems so stark, the, the difference between, between the two of them. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to name names about about Trump. Well, I, and even know, even yeah. like you're seeing the reaction to Fauci now. There's people uh, on the on the again highly partisan. This is a small yeah. number of people. People on the right who think that Fauci's out to get Trump. Right. That this whole <laughs> thing is designed to um, take Trump down. And you know, it, it's like <sighs> I do think we have to remember that we we are all, including Fauci, everyone is making decisions based on emotion 
we are none of us are like objective uh, seers of what's happening here. This is a highly unpredictable event. So it is hard. It is hard to not let emotion creep in, and we should just be honest about that, right? Like um, the. The, the problem is, yeah, you're right. There was a moment. There was a, yeah. I do think with every, every kind of intractable conflict I've studied, when there's a big disruption, there's an opportunity. Yeah. There's an opportunity to heal some of the, this divide, right? Because we do have a common enemy now. Yeah. That's very clear. Like if it weren't clear before, we have one. And there was an opportunity particularly at the national level, to seize that moment and say, you know what? We are all in this together. Not just we Americans, but the entire globe has a common enemy and it's this virus. You know? And if we all join arms, there's nothing we can't do. Yeah. And we know that, right? <laughs> so there was an opportunity. There still may be opportunities, particularly at the state and local level. I do think a lot of state and locals are working across big political and racial and religious divides and other divides. So you know, I don't, I haven't lost all hope, but I do think in most of these situations, the conflict acts as a system and the system has a lot of sort of positive feedback loops that just keep going and going and going. And, um, and it's hard to disrupt those. So that system's kind of clicked back into place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, are there any disasters that you've studied where that window actually was somewhat permanent? The window of we're all in this together and the, Maybe we're the, injured. Yeah, where it endured long after. I'll I'll tell a very brief story. It's on my mind being here in Allentown. Um, uh, after nine eleven, you know, I grew up in a well, not this house in particular. My parents moved here when I was in college, but in this in this uh, sort of liberal household, very democratic household. Uh, there were no George W. Bush fans, but after nine eleven, um, in that spirit of sort of common enemy, and we're all in this together. The, we're all sort of drunk off of the common humanity of cheering for firefighters as they're coming out of the rubble and ambulances. And there's a little bit of that happening now. I mean, the video of people cheering out of their windows and, uh, in, in Europe is, is gorgeous. Um, and in the midst of that sort of feeling, my parents put up an American flag outside of our garage. We're not a family who had ever done anything like that kind of thing. Uh, within, I think it was two and a half, three weeks, they took down the flag because it felt like within two and a half, three weeks, the flag, maybe longer, maybe a month or two, the flag was sort of owned in a partisan conversation of the with us or against us supporting the action of military movement in the Middle East and then eventually Iraq, where, and I think that's persisted to, to to now, but within a year of 9-11, if you were on the highway and driving behind someone and you saw a bumper sticker of an American flag and I had to put a gun to your head and ask you who, who they voted for, I, we all your answer would have been George W. Bush. It's probably Donald Trump today. And that was heartbreaking for me. I remember the moment after 9-11 was one of the first moments I was in college, but one of the first moments in my life I actually felt this sort of swarm of, I don't know, patriotism or nationalism in a positive way of we are in this together. I remember going to baseball games after baseball ca came back, the kind of ceremonies that felt common. Um, and, and now as an analogy, maybe I'll go and take a photo of it just down the street here at a Hess windows store. There's a little family owned place here, uh, that I drive by all the time. I, 
they have a, a an, an earth flag flying right now that I think they just put up. And that seems to go to your point of may, maybe the window's already closing, but um, I don't I don't know. I, I guess I'm asking you to, to give me a, an ounce of hope that that window is not slammed shut yet. Maybe our priors in this country were just too broken and now it's being exposed that it, it was never really going to open here. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there are people who are like the term of art I actually think it's a really good phrase and I think about it a lot is um, conflict entrepreneurs, like people who exploit conflict and they do it for their own emotional needs or for their own profit, like profiteering, price gouging, that kind of thing. Um, They do it for different reasons. You see it with like pundits on TV, like they, they intentionally sort of inflame um, division instead of the opposite. Yeah. even when there are these openings, right? Um, right now, those those conflict entrepreneurs have the biggest microphones in not just the United States, but many countries. And we've built platforms that actually amplify that kind of ex- exploitation of conflict, right? So reward it. And there's not currently a huge disincentive for that kind of exploiting of conflict and aggravating of tension and friction and blame and shame, right? Um, on and, and any side, like left yeah. or right. Um, so we need to change those norms and build, design different platforms. And these are bigger problems, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think it's hard in that climate to be louder than the conflict entrepreneurs, right? That said, at a national level, right? But that right. said, I think there's absolutely an opportunity at the local level. So I personally have seen this every disaster I've covered and I've learned and I, and I felt this right away with this one. There is this window that has opened for every single one of us, right? Mm-hmm. To check in on our neighbors, right? To reach out to a friend or a family member we haven't talked to in a long time. Like I personally really have mourned the loss of the telephone as a device that people use to talk to one another. Okay. Like, We know from all the research that talking the way you and I are talking with or without video is infinitely richer and more meaningful and satisfying than texting or emailing. Right. And yet we've let it go for lots of reasons. So this is this great moment where I can call my friends on the phone or on FaceTime and they're not like, what's wrong? Is there an emergency? (laughs) Like, why are you calling me fool? You know, like, uh, so there's this real opportunity to, build some resilience with your friends and your neighbors and strangers, like, uh, yeah. you know, really, and you see it in a million ways. I don't have to list them for you, but I mean, even in my little neighborhood in DC, there's like all the stuff that's been started where you can volunteer to help local businesses that might need help surviving, like with all kinds of, whether you have, you know, PR skills or social media skills or accounting skills. And, and so there's like a lot of things that open up right? Just as things close and all these things have been canceled and closed because of this thing, there are these openings and you really have to, I really am trying, I don't always succeed, but I'm really trying to lean into those. And, you know, you end up meeting and forming relationships with, even if they're over uh, FaceTime or, or Skype or whatever, you meet people and form relationships with people. You would not be able to do that normally. So there's like, a way to really build resilience, which is more meaningful from a human 
point of view and also makes us stronger for the next thing that comes along. Yeah. I, well, <laughs> amen to that. I mean, and then again, in your experience, are there communities or stories where they've been through this before and they actually just keep kind of getting better at it? I mean, just yesterday, uh, my girlfriend and I were biking around here and we went to this old flour mill that is just in the middle of nowhere in, in Allentown. And there was, uh, we, we met a guy who was from the family and ended up giving a sort of a tour. We kept our distance, but it was really kind of an amazing moment. But one of the stories in it was this flour mill called Haynes's flour mill. If anyone looks it up, uh, it burned down at some point in like 1900 or the 1800s or something. And then he was telling us about the rebuild and he kept emphasizing all of the, in the rebuild, all of these safety measures and measures they took, they put in place to not let it ever burn down again. Like they put lightning rods up and they had a different policy about the kind of grain that they would, cause I think the grain jamming the gears was what caused the fire, all kinds of things. Um, that, that place was never going to burn down again. And you could tell like that was a hundred something years ago. And it's, it's a local story, but you could obviously extrapolate that to, um, uh, well, one, one story that I wrote about recently was, and we've talked about it already, Hurricane Katrina and Memorial Hospital. We actually did an episode on that as well. The awful triage situation happened that happened there. Well, New Orleans, after the floodwaters receded and they were sort of back to some normalcy, built a $1.1 billion hospital in that for that neighborhood that is like built to withstand 200 mile per hour winds and would, 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 you know, easily survive three Katrina's in a row right now. And that's sort of like, okay, you, we can, we can learn from these things. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if this is a dress rehearsal. Are we, what are we learning right now that we can keep? I mean, with the resilient resiliency, it'd be nice to keep that, that we need each other for the next pandemic. Um, all the messaging, I don't know. What can we learn? Yeah. I mean, I love the flour mill example that you gave. I think yeah. that's a really good one. What you find is that if, people go through disasters or, you know, emergencies or difficult periods, even in their own lives, maybe a depression, sickness, if they're able to recover. So, so chronic strain is really hard, right? Um, because you, you can't recover. If you're able to recover and you have the support to get to a place of normalcy and safety, relatively speaking, then often I do see communities come back stronger and, and individuals come back stronger. If, you know, if people who are depressed get good counseling and good meds and, and the support they need, there, there's like a real insight that can happen for people about what their past traumas, about how they, how they live their lives, how they want to live their lives. And the same is true for communities. Um, I mean, I think Part of it depends on whether the, how the duration, which is one of the challenges with this one, because you can't just kind of chronically be carrying a huge amount of trauma without it having kind of really lasting effects. But um, the duration is important. And then also, you know, I think um, leadership is really important. Like, what is the story we are going to tell ourselves about this? And, And not to say that story should be fabricated, but we know from all the literature that the way you frame these things for yourselves and your loved ones and your community really matters and how you think about it. So an example that is in the unthinkable, uh, is a guy named Rick Rascorla who managed security for Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter in the world trade center. And 
he was one of these guys who really believed in regular people's, not just their ability to do good work and under, under strain in a disaster, but also the necessity. He didn't, mm. he knew that you couldn't just wait for someone to come rescue you in a disaster. So um, he, he did go through a very, a very disturbing disaster in, I mean, he was also a Vietnam veteran, but, mm. but in the World Trade Center, in his job, um, the first bombing, right? He, he was very worried about the uh, vulnerability of the garage in the World Trade Center. Like he, he had warned the Port Authority that you could just drive a truck bomb into that garage and blow it up. And that's, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Right before 9-11. And he the evacuation was a disaster. Like it took forever. The stairways were full of smoke. Like it was just, even though it was a much smaller scale of uh incident than 9-11, it was really disappointing to him. And he felt like, you know, everyone had failed. So there's an example where, you know, he he'd gone through something pretty awful and you could have um, you know, quit or gotten discouraged or, you know, just kind of been like angry and grumpy for years to come but instead he really seized that and was incredibly visionary about making sure that everyone at morgan stanley knew how to get out of that building and literally ran them through surprise fire drills where they had to walk downstairs that never happened in the world trade center and almost never happens anywhere today so the having the muscle memory for where the stairwell is and going down some stairs and seeing how long that takes and really taking ownership uh, taking initiative, not waiting for someone to come. Those were things that he really drilled into people. And it was not popular. You know, I should say right. like, like the high net worth banker to Morgan Stanley did not like being interrupted to go for a fire drill, right? Like that was not, but he had the credibility and he had the guts and he had the experience to know uh, what people were capable of and what was necessary. So there's an example of building a culture um, of resilience that, you know, really affected how things went on 9-11. You know, on 9-11, everyone in Morgan Stanley knew where the stairwells were and they evacuated right away. He didn't even have to tell them to do it, you know? And even the uh, visitors, like the, there's like stockbroker training class that was happening. He had a rule, Rick had a rule that you had to be shown where the stairwell was the first day of your visit. So they all knew where it was, which is really, I mean, just, just again, never happens. So when um, when the tower collapsed, only 13 Morgan Stanley employees, including Rick, uh, were inside, and the other 2,687 were safe. So Rick had gone back in because he knew there were some stragglers, but 2,687 were safe, and they were high yeah. in the tower. So it was a really big deal. But that's an example of um, going through a disaster and becoming stronger, particularly by trusting regular people and training them yeah and on on this topic of training and sort of simulating disasters you while writing the book you went through a lot of these yourself which was sort of funny to like read along with you going putting yourself in the guinea pig seat um but obviously the 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 challenge of simulating a disaster is seems you tell me if it's surmountable to actually simulate something like life or death there was a there was a funny story you were trying to do of or or you were relaying of i think it was airlines again 
trying to simulate this notion of panic towards the exit and they just couldn't figure out how to do it in a lab until and the number seemed very low to me but then they said first person out gets ten dollars or something like that and then they kind of did it because they incentivized getting first and then there was suddenly this urgency and people breaking the rules to get out first um can you simulate disasters to a degree where really it reminds me of the, the famous Mike Tyson, uh, the, the wonderful philosopher and boxer, Mike Tyson, who said, uh, everybody has a plan till you get punched in the face. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it seems like that's what a disaster is of like, Oh, I know how to do this. And then suddenly you're like smoke, fire, earthquake. I have no idea what I'm doing, but yeah. Like how, how do you prepare for these things? Maybe we're all going through a slow one here in the pandemic. I'm really wishing I had quoted Mike Tyson in the book. That's oh, you got it. There's, um, there's a I've bunch been... of great Mike Tyson quotes, but <laughs> <laughs> most of them aren't very kosher. But yeah, man, I like that one. Um, <laughs> so I do think it. There's there's two kinds of two things you can do, right? Train for things that are most likely to happen. Mm-hmm. So if you live in Portland, Oregon, you're going to want to prepare for an earthquake, right? Um, so those are the things. Like you, there are certain risks that are just more likely to happen in certain places than others, Florida, California, you know, um, there's certain things and certain states are much better at this. Like California is much, is very good at emergency preparedness in general. Right. Mm. Um, so, so that's the one thing is like, think about where you live, what your risks are, what's most likely to happen. And like, so fire is something that like, you know, is a good thing to train for that, you know, will be useful. And, and that, and can, you can make it kind of fun, but it's mostly like about, you know, I was like the nerd kid who was like nine years old, making my parents do a fire drill. Um, you know, so kids, a lot, kids are very good at this. And that's why fire fighters visit classrooms because they yeah. know that kids are really good evangelists. Um, so, and it doesn't have to be like scary or miserable and it can be, it can be kind of fun. And, um, I still remember cause my dad, you know, he, so, so he was supposed to be the fire, right? So we were all in different rooms and he came in, I was like, fire, fire. And, uh, I immediately like jumped up from the kitchen table and like ran to this window. I was trying to like open the window so I could jump out. And, uh, my brother just kind of looked at me and he like got up from the couch and walked out the door. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's smart. Yeah. I'm going to do that. Um, but, uh, door. So, so yeah, there's, that's, that's a good one. We know certain things like most fires happen at night. It's good to do it, you know, at night, but whatever. Um, then this, but the other thing is some of these skills do transfer. So you probably won't practice for the exact thing, yeah. right? Like that happens. Um, but some of them do transfer, particularly the community building ones. So there's a story in the book about a little town in California that um, decided to do a tsunami drill. And they weren't sure that, you know, anyone would come or what would happen. And, uh, and people got super into it, you know, like kids brought their pets, their stuffed animals. And when they got to the evacuation point, which was in high ground, they had a little like, um, clock you could punch to see how long it took you. And, uh, Mm. just so you'd have that memory, like, oh man, last time this happened, it took me like seven minutes. And, you know, if there's a warning, yeah, I won't have that much time whatever. So that was useful. But the thing that was cool is like after the drill, everybody hung out and was just like talking and chatting and laughing and it became like a community building event. So, so the next time something happens there, let's say they do these drills every year or whatever. Um, then you have this, even if it's not a tsunami, right? Let's say it's an earthquake. Um, let's say it's a pandemic. 
right? Mm-hmm. All those things you do build connect connectivity in that community, a sense of solidarity, a sense of um, knowing who needs help. That's a big thing, right? Like yeah. knowing who's the person who's in a wheelchair and is going to need to be carried. And so those are things that you learn that are some of them are really pragmatic and some of them are, are a little more um, indefin- undefinable, right? Like yeah. just the the quality of relationships that build from those experiences. This one seems particularly challenging because of it. You covered SARS, you said, or which, which pandemic and, and Ebola and like the whole. Uh, swine flu, like the ones flu. that really work the U S yeah. Yeah. Because with this one, it's um, the people who need help sometimes are the ones who you're told to stay far away from. Um, I'm thinking of like old people who are lonely and now we all have to stay away from them. They were already kind of neglected in society before. And now it's like you, you can wave riding my bike yesterday. I was waving at this, you know, older woman in a wheelchair and that's feels like kind of the best you could do now. I mean, is, I don't know, in, in the other pandemics that, that you saw this sense of solidarity, but having this, to, to be physically separate from someone, I don't know, like you said, Skyping and video messaging is bridging the gap somehow. Um, but it's really diabolical, yeah. isn't it? Like, yeah, it's really, really crappy. <laughs> it's yeah, really, I keep calling, really we have an elderly neighbor. I keep calling her. Well, I've called her like a couple, my husband's called her. I've called her. And she, every time she's like, yeah, um, nothing's changed for me, Amanda. Like I'm 95. <laughs> I'm home alone exactly. all day. Yeah. And and it's sort of sad because it's like, man, you're right. You know, like you were isolated before this. Um, and now I'm calling you and offering to buy you groceries. Is that is that really what you need? Like, right. It, and why why didn't you call two months ago? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. There's so a lot of like guilt like, happening. Yeah. 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 There's a, it's, it's unsatisfying. Like, like, I think she's fine to have us check in. But, you know, is that really the need? And uh, and so so there is something diabolical which is why like I, I did this piece in, in the post about this like i really think that just like if suddenly there were no sun we would all take vitamin d you have to supplement what you have to take a supplement like you can't do this physical distancing thing and then like behave the same way like so you we know that the effects of this not just on other people but on ourselves are really unhealthy over time especially so like you have to exercise more than you normally do if you can. I know that's not easy if you're if you're you know trying to take care of kids or you have health issues, whatever. But like if you can possibly exercise, you should look at that as like required, you know, yeah. like and it, whether you do it in at home or outside, doesn't matter. But that's a way that you uh, compensate for the deleterious effects of stress and isolation and anxiety. So it's, it's literally a direct hit for yeah. so many other things where, and boost your immune system and all that so that you can be helpful to people, uh, around you. And then, you know, another thing is talking like how, ha- like we're talking, like really talking to, to other people once a day, at least, um, whether it's on the phone or, or WhatsApp or whatever. Um, and then also, um, trying to do some small act of kindness for someone else. So get out of your own head, do some small thing, whether it's checking out a neighbor or, you know, if you can uh, donating to a local business or, um, you know, there's a list of all the waiters and baristas in uh, DC going around and you can give them a tip 
via Venmo or even if it's a dollar, you know, like, so that feels good. And it obviously it's nice, but like it also, again, in the research has this uh, effect of decreasing your stress, boosting your immune system. So you can make a very clear scientific argument for why we need to be doing more socially, um, Mm. not less. Yeah. Yeah. To your son analogy, um, it's like if, if the sun went out and you, you took the supplement and then the sun came back on, I, maybe you would appreciate it more. It's one of those, you know, to quote the other philosopher, Joni Mitchell, don't know what you got to, it's gone. I don't know the whole, <laughs> the whole song or the whole quote. Um, but I hope if we're missing each other with the social distancing thing, hopefully we'll remember that when we're, when we're given the thumbs up and able to actually hug each other again, maybe, maybe we'll remember how much we missed, uh, you know, saying hi to the grocery the grocer or whatever who sells us our stuff I, you know you hope that sort of lasts um yeah, yeah. yeah. i'm glad you mentioned that because i do worry about like the which of these habits will stick you know yeah. like um after the 08 recession we saw companies um you know had hired a lot of temp workers because of the financial insecurity and uncertainty and then they discovered hey guess what this this works for us like we yeah. it's cheaper for us so they those full-time jobs a lot of them never came back Right. And we've seen the consequences on that of that on wages and other things and benefits. So there's certain things we don't want to stick. Yeah. We don't want people to be like, well, I guess we don't have to meet in person, you know, like, well, I guess, you right. know, yeah. um, so so I think it's good to be like aware of those. And, and again, really leaning into this like this. I tried to get it's not working at all, but I tried on Twitter to get the phrase social closening, like to be trending. It's an awkward word, but that's a real word. It turns out the like closening. Uh, so, uh, what do you want it to mean? I could help it. out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like, if you're going to do physical distancing, you have to do social uh, closening. You know, it's like yeah. chocolate chip cookies and milk. Like you just can't do one. So right. like you have to do them together and, uh, maybe there's a better word. Like closening is weird, but, um, yeah, I'm sure there is. But you want it to mean like video, like call, call yeah, your friends, like more <laughs> yeah. like connectivity, you know, like yeah. I, I actually have to go in a few minutes because I'm doing a Zoom yeah, yeah. happy hour. And, you know, there it's you like go. with We're some all. friends that I haven't talked to in a long time. Um, but I did want to I feel like I failed to answer something that we brought up, which is what if you have a friend who's not taking this seriously enough? Um, yeah. And if it's OK with you, I just wanted to quickly address that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So there's something called like the dread equation that we all carry around in our in our heads. And uh, it's how we make risk assessments when we encounter some possible threat. Right. Um, And it's it's a it's an official term dread, but you can kind of feel it. Right. Like is something really dreadful or not? So plane crashes, high dread. Right. Mm -hmm. Car crashes, low dread, even though, you know, obviously car crashes are, are way, way, way more dangerous. Um, so, so if you know someone who's either feeling too little dread or uh, too much dread, um, then you can tweak the ingredients that go into dread uh, or you can try to, right? Um, and, and I really do think of it as a sort of equation. Um, so. So some of the things that go into the dread equation are um, whether something is um, uh, like imaginable, like whether you can imagine it happening, Um, maybe because you've seen it in movies, maybe not. This would be a case where if someone was not seriously 
um, and someone in your their town died of the coronavirus, then that would be um, something you'd want to leave open on their screen, right? <laughs> like that's the kind of thing where a salient, to your point, like as someone who works in film, particularly um, TV, like video is a much more emotional medium. So for people on the other extreme who are feeling too much dread right now, maybe people who had a lot of anxiety before or other things, they should not be watching TV news full stop at all. Like mm-hmm. not online, not on TV, nowhere. In fact, I wouldn't even listen to the radio. Like it's just mm-hmm. not helpful because it's just much more emotional. If you want to, you know, it's good to stay informed, read the news, put on your, you put on a 10 minute timer and read a news source that you trust. But reading is just radically, radically better than uh, at this moment right. <laughs> for um, lowering the emotional um, dread level. So, so the things that go into dread are the uncontrollability of a threat, the unfamiliarity of it, the imaginability of it, the amount of suffering involved, right? Mm-hmm. So if something feels like there's going to be a lot of suffering, like cancer, as opposed to like a heart attack in our heads, cancer seems like a lot more suffering. Um, the scale of destruction. So we're much more upset about a, a bus crash that kills 50 people than 50 separate car crashes, right? Mm-hmm. And also unfairness. And this is a really big one in a, mm-hmm. in a pandemic. Um, so if something feels unfair, like um, the doctor who tried to get attention yeah. about coronavirus in China, the fact that he died is, is really kind of brutal, right, to, to process. And so those kinds of things do amp up our dread equation. So, you know, in a perfect world, we would all kind of like take, a, take an online test and see if our dread level is just mm-hmm. right. And, and then we could adjust. But like, it's hard to know until later. Yeah. Coronavirus tests and a dread level test. <laughs> we should be making. Yeah. We should be making both yeah. of them. Probably we could get the dread level test out sooner. Yeah. Yeah. True. Um, well, I'll let you go because you do have a, a socially a social closing obligation. Some people are are busier than than normal with their social, which is, which is kind of nice to see. Yes. Hopefully, we retain some of that. Um, I mean, th- this has been amazing. Uh, honestly, like I said, you're you're a guest who I've been trying to uh, I've been waiting to reach out to, and this felt like the right time. But I am determined to get you on a more standard uh, uh, episode where we talk about something not at all about this. You know, I loved your book, uh, The Smartest Kids in the World. Who, which was about comparing educational systems all over the world. And you spent time in Poland and was it Korea, South Korea? Yep. Uh, Finland. And, and Finland, which was uh, a fascinating book. And now you're working on something new, which was, is, does it have a title yet? Your, uh, your new the project? working title is High Conflict, but you know we still have to argue about it for a while. So. Well, that's part of what your book is about. So high conflict, which is about get, get how to get out of or getting out of intractable conflicts and how one might do that. So, um, yeah, uh, Amanda Ripley, I'm a huge, huge fan and a huge fan of your writing and, um, be well, be safe. I will hopefully see you because I very much social distancing is a little difficult for me. This stuff is fun, but I actually like doing all these things in person. So I'm dying to get back out in the world again and I'll, I'll come visit you down and, DC or wherever you are and we'll we'll do this again. I look so. forward to that day. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for doing this and I look forward to uh to being able to see you in person someday soon. <laughs> yes. All right. Be well. Take care, Amanda. All right, you too. Take good Bye care. Then.